Abba, Father, thank you for this time that we have to be together and to discuss matters that pertain to your kingdom and Woodland Hills in particular and how we relate to our kindred, our tribe. Um, we're always seeking your leading and guidance. We don't want to go ahead on our, our own ideas, our own fleshy thinking. We really do want to follow your spirit. And we know from your word, Acts 15, that your spirit works through dialogue and questioning and probing and thinking and all sorts of other things. So, Father, uh, we just surrender this time to you, ask that you use it to clarify your vision for us, this people, here and now, what you want to do for us and through us and among us uh, to further your kingdom. It's all about you. You're the king. Uh, we're just at your service. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Good evening. Good evening. I'm just going to set a little bit of context for our uh, Q&A time tonight. After that, Greg's going to kind of say a few words about the mechanics of how this thing will work, and then we'll start diving into some, some questions and reflections. Um, about a year ago, uh, Greg did a series called Tapestry, and the purpose of that series was really to help us as a church um, kind of open our eyes to the fact that what, what's going on here is tied to a number of streams of Christian tradition that go way back in history. Um, one of the challenges, we think, uh, of, of North American Christianity so many times, given the sort of the individualism of our culture and sort of the idea that new is always better, one of the things we often lose in our culture is the sense of tradition, the sense of connectedness to brothers and sisters that go back into the past. And so we wanted to take a moment last last spring, a year ago, and, and take a look at some of the traditions that have influenced us over the years. The last two weeks of that series, Tapestry Series, take, took a look at Anabaptism. This year, uh, we've done a series focusing on that tradition. Uh, in a lot of ways, the different traditions we looked at last year in Tapestry, of all the ones we looked at, Anabaptism, that last one Greg focused on, captures some distinctives of our church in a way that the others really didn't. And so we wanted to step back and, and kind of regroup and refocus on that, that, that particular strand of tradition, Anabaptism, that as we look at ourselves now, we go, you know, what we look like as a church in terms of our theological vision, how we understand the kingdom of God. And that's really what, what the kind of the, the, the cornerstone here was, is as Greg for years has preached the kingdom message here, and, and a bunch of us have sort of rallied around that, we notice that the way that has developed for us as we have continued to explore what it means to be kingdom has turned out to look a whole lot like what the Anabaptist tradition has been saying for centuries. So it's never been about something of us trying to, trying to become something, but rather noticing what God's made us in terms of our sense of kingdom and, and church and all these things, and noticing there's a tradition that sounds a lot like that. And might that be something we need to pay attention to? Um, the Kindred series, we just uh, finished that up recently, is really uh, a look at that focused uh, look at Anabaptism. You know, when I think about how this has developed, I think back really to, to the, the Love series that Greg did back 2002. And it really began, it became for our church, I think, a, a seismic moment when we began to focus on agape love as the center of who God is and the center of what God calls us to be and do as a people. Um, the Anabaptists have always put love at the center of their picture of God. A few years later, Greg uh, preached cross and the sword. There was a decisive moment for our church. And out of that came the myth of a Christian nation. 
And it was really the publication of that book in that, uh, that week that Greg was in the front page of the New York Times, and, and it caught a lot of attention. And that's when a number of Anabaptists began contacting us saying, what you guys are saying sounds a lot like what we're saying. And within a while, Mennonites were contacting Greg, and he was speaking all over uh, the country at various Mennonite conferences. Uh, the Meeting House, their brethren in Christ, uh, another Anabaptist denomination, they contacted Greg, and next thing you know, he's up there connecting with them, and Bruxy and, and Tim and those guys have become you know, almost like a Canadian family now. So a lot of this has come as we've begun to recognize that there's a tribe, Anabaptists, that, that are in a lot of ways like theological family when it comes to this, this kingdom vision. I think another really important thing that, to know is that Wooden Hill's leadership, about two years ago maybe, felt a real strong sense from God that we, we got a word from God, a word about the fact that what we're called to be and do, kind of the way we, way we heard it was, you can't do this alone. Don't do this alone. Don't play the individualistic American church game, but rather look for the kind of tribe that, that there could be a, a movement around instead of just an individual church doing its own thing. And so a lot of this stuff is what's behind uh, our coming together now after the Kindred series to talk about this thing called Anabaptism. We look forward to your questions, and uh, we just really thank you for being here and being part of the process of us thinking through this particular way of seeing the kingdom. Well said, Paul. Spectacular. And the, the only thing I want to reiterate, uh, and we've said this in all of the town hall meetings that we've had, we've had several of them as we're going through the series, um, but it's not at all about anything about us changing. Uh, we are going to remain exactly as we are. Um, you know, this God, God's always changing us, but there's not any structural way that we're looking at and planning on changing. Uh, the folks who attend the church will see nothing different. Uh, they'll be, uh, in all respects, the way we operate and what we believe and what we practice, it's going to be identical to what we're doing now. Because it's not about how we're going to change. It's just about finding folks that already are in line with who we are. And, um, yeah, it's about, about um, finding the group that, that shares our, our core convictions. So uh, we'll be, if you have questions, this is what this is all about. Uh, if you don't have any questions, we're going to sit here and look at each other. Kind of silly for a while. Uh, you know, but that'll be fine. You can just tune in a meditation thing. But if you do have questions, uh, the number we we can't we don't have the mechanism to put it up on there. But it is, and I, I left my sheet in my office. Do you want me to? Yes. What is the number? Vanessa will tell us the number. <laughs> the number is six five one three two one three zero three zero. Once again, that is six five one three two one three zero three zero. Got that? All right. Uh, then if, if uh, you don't have a texting uh, capabilities, you can write out your question. There should be paper on each of the tables. Um, and turn them into Andrew, that good-looking man over there, who is also running a computer, Shishka Baba Ramadini. Yeah, so you can give him the question, and uh, then he's going to text it into Vanessa. And we're, we just got it going so sophisticated yeah, here. Uh, we didn't, by the way, get this room because we thought we weren't going to have many people. A few people have asked that. You know, weren't you expecting a big turnout? Uh, it didn't have anything to do with that. It's just that Echo, our youth ministry, had the room booked uh, for a long time, and uh, so we didn't think it was right to try to push them out. So that we thought we'll just meet here, and it's looking pretty good. We're getting a little full. Our, uh, we still have some other chairs over there. If uh, um, yeah, Trevor, you got such strong arms. 
Uh, could you help out with the chairs as people come in? Uh, and just want everyone to have a chair. All right? All right. Let's do it. Are you ready? I think so. Okay. Here's your first question. I know that Woodland Hills believes in the full range of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Do Anabaptists practice the gifts of the Holy Spirit, including prophecy and speaking in tongues? Good question. Go ahead. Uh, the, the, the relationship between Anabaptism and uh, the charismatic gifts or Pentecostalism is an interesting one. Uh, very early on in, in Anabaptist history, like within a couple of years of the opening, we have record of, of um, early Anabaptists um, participating in what we would call the charismatic gifts of the Spirit, particularly prophecy. Um, in fact, one of Greg's sermons that he did, he had a story, a snippet about Margaret Hottinger, right? Mm-hmm. Hottinger. And, uh, and we have record that Margaret was, was one of these, uh, was a prophetess, um, was, uh, gave prophecies that were actually written down. And so very early on, um, the, the openness to what we today call the charismatic gifts was in fact something that, that characterized early Anabaptism. In fact, I read in one book, uh, someone, uh, a historian called the Anabaptists the uh, 16th century Pentecostals. Uh, now, that has not always carried through. Um, probably, in fact, I just saw a, a study not, I think it was done two years ago, a book on this topic, interesting book called Winds of the Spirit, um, a profile of Anabaptists in the global south. So it's a study of Anabaptists outside of the European North American context and in uh, predominantly Africa, Asia, and India. And it turns out that uh, in those contexts, which interestingly enough, there's now more Anabaptists in the global south than in the global north. Uh, in those contexts, over 80% of Anabaptists do in fact uh, participate or are involved in the practice of charismatic gifts. Uh, in the North American European context, it's just, just over half say they believe that those are gifts for today, and just under half report actually practicing it. But um, so it's, it's, it's like many things with Anabaptism, it depends where you're talking about and what group you're talking about. But there is a history of Anabaptists participating in the, the charismatic gifts, and in the global south today, predominantly, that's the case. When I was at uh, one of the conferences I spoke at, uh, at one point I had mentioned, I forget how it came up, but I mentioned that I, I, I speak in tongues. And um, uh, I don't even know why I said it, but it was just kind of an incidental thing. And afterwards, I had a bunch of people come up to me, these Mennonites, and they were like, oh, that's so exciting, you know, because we're all like Pentecostal Mennonites, and all the more reasons why you guys should join us. They're really just kind of, well, they're charismatic, so they were kind of out there. But uh, um, they were telling me that, that during the charismatic movement of the 60s and 70s, because the, the Anabaptists have never been uh, that dogmatic, their, their doctrine's never been the main thing. How you live has always been the more important thing. Not that they want to minimize that, but there've never been like these dogmatists who were dispensationalists saying it, you know this had to end at a certain period of time. And because of that, the charismatic movement really made big inroads into uh, some of the Anabaptist groups, the Mennonites in, in particular, and um, uh, it's had a lasting effect. So I, I, I didn't know about that, but there's a fairly healthy contingent of of uh, charismatic uh, Anabaptists out there. Apparently, even more in the global south. Cool. You good? Next question? Yep. Okay. I have two questions that go together here. 
Um, so the first one is, I'm struggling with complete pacifism. Isn't Jesus the same when he put the ear back on the man as he was when he cleared the temple? And if Jesus brought God's shalom, then why did he say, I came not to bring peace, but a sword? Ah, good. Want me to take this one first? Yeah, Greg, why did he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, true friend, true friend. <laughs> uh, well, I'll start with this, the second thing. The first question was, wasn't Jesus, I thought you said insane when he put the ear. No, the same. <laughs> the same. Oh. So I was going to say, Jesus? he did look insane <laughs> when he put the ear. Uh, yes, Jesus was the same as when he, uh, when he put the ear back on the guard as when he cleared the temple. People have this idea that clearing the temple was a violent activity. Um, I, like, like Jesus had a temper tantrum or something, and he just got mad and started throwing over temples and wanted to start beating up people. Uh, I don't think it was all like that. Uh, I'd argue, and in doing this, I'm not at all a minority. Uh, I think this is uh, the bulk of New Testament scholarship would argue this. Now, this was a calculated event. Jesus, this wasn't a uh, spur-of-the-moment, hot-tempered thing that Jesus did. Um, he was uh, fulfilling a prophecy in Zechariah uh, as the Messiah who was supposed to come and clear the temple. That was what was prophesied. Um, he was laying the groundwork uh, uh, to get arrested. He was instigating authorities. I think this was all, he came to get crucified. And this is one way of doing it. It wasn't an off-the-cuff, hot-tempered sort of a thing. Uh, and if you read the accounts carefully, there's no indication of violence, except to tables. He did turn over the tables. Um, but, but that was it. Um, he, John says he made a whip, but he tells us what he made the whip for. It was to uh, create a stampede for, for animals to run out of the temple. That's the way you always startle animals and get them flowing in a certain direction is to crack a whip. And so he cracks the whip to get the animals running in a certain direction. It doesn't say at all he used it on, on uh, uh, people or, or the animals. Um, if he would have had any violence towards uh, any human in that temple, A, he would have been immediately accused of hypocrisy because all of his teachings are against that. And uh, uh, yeah, he would have been exposed as just being a total hypocrite. And secondly, he would have got arrested on the spot if he would have accosted any of the folks in there. Um, and he wouldn't have been around the next day. So there's nothing that indicates that that was, it was, a, it was an aggressive act for sure. Uh, but there's nothing, um, God gets aggressive sometimes. And it's, if it's done out of love for the purpose of furthering love, then uh, that's a permissible thing. Um, then as to, if he came to bring peace, shalom, why did he say, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword? It's always important, remember, to put things in context and look at what is the immediate context that he's talking about. Um, and Because if you don't do that, we, you have Jesus just contradicting himself again. And whenever you find yourself having an interpretation of two verses where there's a contradiction, that's one good indication that you don't have the right interpretation. If Jesus says, I came to bring peace. No, I didn't come to bring peace. Well, what is it? Uh, if, you, if you look at the context, Jesus is in, in that passage talking about the great cost of discipleship. And um, uh, he's, throughout the whole context, using a great deal of hyperbole, which is simply exaggeratory language, which is a part of Semitic culture and uh, Semitic language. You use uh, hyperbole, exaggeratory language, startling language to put an exclamation point on things. It's always important to remember that when you're interpreting the Bible, otherwise you can take things literally that weren't meant to be taken literally. Like if your eye offends, you cut it out and cast it from you. Uh, don't take that literally. Uh, it wouldn't help you even if you did. Um, but he's, he's just stressing a point. And here Jesus is saying, talking about the cost of discipleship. So in a hyperbolic way, he says, unless you hate your mother and father, 
you can't be my disciple. Well, he doesn't mean it literally. He's simply stating in a Semitic way that uh, we are to prefer Jesus and put him in such a higher priority that it's as though the difference between him and loving our parents was one of love and hate. But he didn't mean it literally, otherwise he'd be breaking one of the Ten Commandments. And then he says, don't think I've come to bring peace but a sword. And he goes on to add, I'm going to be dividing because of me. Families will be divided. Uh, fathers from their children, mothers from their daughters, uh, brother against brother, sister against brother, sister against sister. And, and so what he's saying is because of this, now that I'm here, don't think that this is going to be an easy road. I ask, I've come to bring peace. But it's not a peace that's going to be costless. It's going to be a costly peace. And, and it's one where you can... You need to be prepared to be rejected by your spouse, be rejected by your parent, be rejected by your children. Uh, the family may disown you. And as a matter of fact, throughout history, that's often been the case. As a matter of fact, to this day, in a lot of parts of the world, if you follow Jesus, you have to be pre prepared to accept that sword, a sword that will divide families. Uh, I know that I, I, my first ministry opportunity was with this uh, man who was from India. And he says that in his particular town, it had changed somewhat. But he, in many parts of India, especially where you're under strong Hindu rule, uh, especially where they've forbidden evangelism, which they have done at various times, um, that to become a Christian, if you're baptized as a Christian, your family will disown you, never speak to you again. Maybe we'll turn you into authorities. Uh, that's the cost of discipleship. But Jesus wasn't... I mean, clearly wasn't saying, if you compare Scripture with Scripture, wasn't saying that in any literal sense he came to give us a sword. Uh, no, Prepare for division. <laughs> okay, great. Adult baptism is important to the Anabaptists, but I don't remember reading if the apostles were baptized. Were they? If the what? If the apostles were baptized. Oh. They were, for sure, totally. <laughs> well, a number of them were baptized in John the Baptist's baptism, right? I mean, that's kind of where the movement started, and Jesus himself submitting to that same baptism, and really Jesus' movement coming out of John the Baptist's uh, movement. Um, and certainly the Gospels say that once Jesus started his own ministry, uh, the apostles were baptizing others. So I think when you put it all together, we know that several of them explicitly were said to have been following John and his baptism, we know that they were then baptizing for Jesus, and so I think by sort of logic, you would say that even the ones we're not explicitly told would have been to sort of follow the pattern there. Yeah, I've never, I think we pause because I don't think we've ever had that question before. Yeah, I never I've, thought, I've never thought of that. There, there actually isn't. I'm, I'm, I'm scanning. I'm scanning my brain right now. To find, is there any episode where one of the disciples have an account of being baptized? Yeah, but you're right. In John four, it talks about how they're all all baptized and were baptizing except for Jesus, didn't baptize anybody. Paul, Paul says that when he came to Corinth, uh, he was baptizing, he baptized the house of Chloe, but he didn't baptize anyone else. I'm just going to run through my brain here. Uh, he was talking, we know that they, Peter baptized because uh, he says, you know, that some of you are claiming to be uh, of Paul and of Cephas, you know, and all these different people, depending on who baptized them, they would say, oh, I'm a follower of so-and-so, and Paul says, don't do that. But there is no account that I know of, of Peter being baptized or of anyone else. Uh, they, I, there's accounts of them baptizing, but I don't, 
I'm assuming that that is, it'd be impossible to think that they, they themselves weren't baptized when they stressed it so much and baptized others. So probably it just was assumed, and that's why we don't have an account of it. But it never occurred to me until this very moment that we don't have an explicit account of that. Yeah. Yeah, live another day, learn another day. <laughs> always something to learn. There is. There's always, there always something to learn. By golly, we should always be learning. We should. Okay. <laughs> How are the Quakers and other peace-oriented denominations different from the Anabaptists? How are the Quakers and other peace-oriented denominations? Well, it, there's, um, I mean, it's a, that, that's a hard way to answer, to ask the question in that um, really the question should be how are they similar? Because there's so many different peace organizations and there's so many differences. So like the Quakers, for example, um, I don't think there's any historical connection between the Quakers and the Anabaptists. None that I know of, anyways. They, uh, they originated in, in different locales. And um, the Quakers had, um, in all other respects, they weren't like the Mennonites. I mean, the Quakers were generally, uh, they were very spiritualistic in the sense that they'd come in um, and just kind of wait on the spirit. They did share this idea that the body of Christ uh, shouldn't have any kind of bosses in the sense that one person dictates over others. So they were both against the hierarchical authority of the church. Um, but the Quakers took that to mean that, that you shouldn't even have any teachers, that the Spirit should teach you, and so when you come into a room, everyone should just wait, and the Spirit will land on somebody, and they'll end up doing the teaching, and it was just very, you know, kind of loose like that, whereas the Mennonites, in all of the respects, were uh, closer to the, the um, uh, to traditional Christianity in that they held the legitimacy of having teachers and preachers and uh, servant leaders and things of that sort. Um, and there's, there's, other, there's other peace organizations that aren't even Christian. I mean, there's a number of groups that just aren't, aren't you know, at all Christian. There's, uh, there, there's even pacifist um, uh, Muslim organizations. It always surprises some people. So just because you have one thing in common doesn't mean you're going to have anything else in common. Uh, they're, they're, they're very different. I don't know what to say about that. That's it? Okay. Yeah. Um, I have two questions that are on hell that I kind of want to put together. Can Go I, for it. Can I do that? All right. So your first question is, do Anabaptists believe in hell? If so, how could they justify God sending a person um, to hell who has never been introduced to Jesus into internal punishment? And then the other question, which is a little different, is that during the Reformation, the Reformers threw out the doctrine of purgatory and thereby they turned death into a heaven or hell situation. Scripture alludes to an intermediate state between death and the resurrection, so could you shed some light on this state and what the Anabaptists believe about life after death? Go ahead, so. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Take it away, Polly! Wow. I, I don't know that I've ever read anything on Anabaptists' uh, views on the interim state, intermediate state. It's a good question. Um, I'm almost back to the point, you know, that I had said earlier. Whenever you ask the question about what do Anabaptists think about and fill in the blank, you almost immediately have to say, "Well, wait a minute, which, like, which period of time, which group?" There's this diversity within Anabaptism. I think, you know, when we think of the the Anabaptists that that um, you know emerged out of Switzerland in the, you know, fifteen early 1500s, those folks were very. Um, very Bible-centered, and so I think they would have had, you know, a very sort of uh, straightforward, pretty literalistic reading of heaven and hell, and these sorts of things. 
Um, and I think that that tradition probably has carried right through to today. Now, how they've theologized that is would be an interesting question. If you're a peace tradition and believing that God's about peace, then how do you reconcile that with the notion of a violent hell that God would be sending to? I'll, I'll take a guess here of how they might. They might do it sort of in the way that C.S. Lewis uh, approached this when Lewis said that hell uh, is locked from the inside, not the outside. In other words, it's not that there's, there's sort of this violent, angry God who's throwing people into hell. Rather, there's this love-centered God who's trying to woo people away from that, and yet he's given them free will. And the Anabaptists were very, very strong on the free will piece, uh, unlike a lot of the other reformers at that time. They were very uh, adamant that the free will was an absolutely essential quality to relationship. And if you're free, then you're also free to resist God and, and, and go towards that state we call hell. But in the end, it's not that God's sort of locking people in there. It's that people refusing to come to God are, in a sense, locking themselves in there, uh, which is you know, Lewis, in his really fascinating little book, The Great Divorce, does a really nice allegory of this. Um, but my guess would be that theologically, that's the place that Anabaptists would, would probably tend. Huh? Yeah, uh, the thing that's interesting about... Um, and I, I don't have this as a formulated idea. It's something that's very much in process. I've noticed it. I've never articulated it. This is the first time I've ever really articulated it, so it could come out very gobbledygook. Forgive me ahead of time, all right? But let me gobbledygook in front of you. Um, here's the gobbledygook, is that the, the way that many, maybe most evangelicals think about belief, I've just noticed that it's kind of different from the way the Anabaptists that I've come to know think about beliefs. And here's the difference. It's, it's kind of, the case in, 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 in traditional evangelicalism, or at least my exposure to it, is that beliefs are sort of an end in and of themselves. So whatever else the church is, it's the group of right believers. So I, I've got the right beliefs, and you've got the right beliefs, and you've got the right beliefs. And then we want to we know, um, you know, sniff out who's got the wrong beliefs and get them out. Um, and draw the lines very clear, because we're the group of right believers. And it goes along with the, the idea that salvation is, at least in part, contingent upon having the right beliefs. So God is the, the extreme uh, theologian schoolmaster who is going to give you the theology test on the Day of Judgment. And if you are wrong on some essential beliefs, well, then you're out. Um, you, you get an F, and in most of the evangelical uh, groups, that F lasts for yet forever. Um, and so there's a premium put on right believing, and, and, and that's why you, you find among evangelicals a lot of energy spent on discussing these things, and when they find out that somebody in their group has a different belief, they'll often expend a great deal of energy uh, to dis discredit it and dismantle it, um, theological arguments in evangelical circles often have a real angst to them because so much de so much depends on this, and because they have uh, a, a, a there's a widespread conviction that it's your right beliefs that make you right with God. Well, then um, you, part of what makes you okay are your right beliefs, and and so that means that you've got really a, a kind of a, an idolatry going on where uh, my, my well-being comes from my rightness. And so if your well-being comes from your rightness, when somebody disagrees with you, uh, 
you could get very angry uh, and, and upset. It's, a lot more, it's, it's about a lot more than just the belief uh, or it's right, right and wrong. Uh, it's, it's rather about uh, your okayness, your source of life. And, and that's why in evangelical circles, um, as especially at a professional level, some of the discussions are very intense, especially if you happen to be one of those that doesn't always line up with uh, the majority opinion. It can be very intense. You're talking uh, about yourself. Yes, I, 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 I'm saying that. I, I'm speaking from experience. So the, the, what I've noticed in Anabaptist circles, because they have put, uh, partly because they were a persecuted group, because they were persecuted, persecuted groups tend to be a lot more tolerant than uh, the groups that did the persecuting. Uh, they're going to be a lot less quick to burn anyone at the stake because they know what that's like. So you have built in there a sense of, of uh, you know, openness, if you will, a tolerance um, to some diversity. But the other thing is that they always have emphasized that what, what the body of Christ is to be is not, first and foremost, the group that believes all the right beliefs. Not that that's unimportant, but it's not what defines us. It's rather that we are a group of people who are committed to uh, loving God and uh, loving Jesus and living like Jesus and loving one another like Jesus. It, it's the extraordinary character of the church that is to be its defining characteristic. And that's why in Anabaptist circles, you can have, I have had a number of, of uh, theological discussions on a number of topics, including heaven and hell and, and all of that. But it doesn't at all have the kind of flavor that you get in a certain very intense orthodox circles. Um, and, and you'll find a, a lot of diversity there. But here's kind of the, the, I think, the attitude. It's this. Let's say we're going to have a discussion about hell. Uh, is it eternal suffering or is it annihilationism? Is it redemptive? Maybe something temporary leading to a hope for universalism? Uh, you know, and we're going to discuss this. In an Anabaptist crowd, so far as I can see, the, uh, the, the assumption would be this, that if it's clear in Scripture, we'll come to agree on it. And if it's not clear in Scripture, we're, we're probably going to have some disagreements about it. But either way, we shouldn't, try to, we shouldn't need to try to up the ante by getting intense or by shouting or by getting angry about it. Let the text speak for itself. You see, let's just have an open investigation. And, and if it's clear, we'll all agree. And if not, well, then we'll disagree um, and whatever. But they would be more concerned with how you debate the issue than what your position is in the issue. Um, and, and so that's why you find... Um, in fact, I've presented the open view in front of a bunch of uh, Mennonite pastors and laid out the issue. And, and the response is something like, like, why would people get mad at that? Not whether they agree or not. It's like, what is the, people got mad about that? Uh, or when you're discussing hell, it's like, they say, well, that's interesting. Never thought of that before. I'm not sure about that. Have you ever thought about this? So push back a little bit, but they're surprised at the level of animosity that you sometimes find out there. And that's why on a lot of these theological questions, you'll hear us saying, well, it's across the spectrum. There's a lot of diversity there. Um, and uh, I think that is a good thing. Not that the doctrine isn't important. Not that you shouldn't write books on doctrine. Oh, we should never get rid of writing books on doctrine. Heaven forbid. But uh, we've got to hold them in love and with grace. All right. In The Naked Anabaptist by Stuart Murray, only a few sentences are written about the issue of creation care. Is the issue of stewardship of the earth and of the animals going to be brought forward into the Anabaptist movement in a significant way? And how will Woodland Hills deal with this issue? Hmm. 
Well, um, uh, yeah, th- that, that was a weakness, I think, in the naked Anabaptist. Um, but I, I don't know as much about the Anabaptist as Murray does, so um, I'm not going to critique him on that point. Um, I will say that as I've spoken to various Anabaptist groups, um, I've felt at least a, com- a, a shared, um, uh, maybe not passion, but, but an agreement about the, the salvation uh, and the gospel and what Jesus did on the cross is uh, for all of creation. There's been that, that sentiment. That's part of their tradition. I don't think it has been, in the Western world anyways, um, as much a part of their tradition as it needs to be, and I think some folks see that. Uh, they, like everyone else in the West, have been co-opted by the Industrial Revolution and all the other things in Western culture that has conditioned our thinking uh, to be just consumers of the environment rather, rather than caretakers of the environment. And they've been affected by that as, you know, as, as much as anybody else. And so you haven't had that as a strong motif. Um, I am hoping that uh, we at Woodland Hills continue to grow in that conviction and continue to influence others in that conviction. And um, one of the things we're looking at as we're looking at what tribe to belong to is not only how would they bless us and help us, but um, how, is, God, is God leading us to somehow pour into them and influence them? That's one of the criteria we're looking at. And this is one area where I would hope that as we continue to grow on this, uh, we can maybe begin to influence others in, in, in caring for this. Um, it is a, a, certainly a growing passion of mine, I, and I see it all over the place in Scripture, as I shared a couple weeks ago uh, from the pulpit. Um, that it's shalom for the whole of creation. But it hasn't been as strong as it needs to be, I don't think, in the, in the contemporary Anabaptist. Yeah, I'd reiterate it is, it is a really important piece of our uh, theology here at Woodland Hills. Um, our discipleship and formation pastor, Kevin Callaghan, is here somewhere. And I know in, in, in his model of discipleship, what, we, what he's designed is what we call the four directions of love. Uh, loving God, loving others, loving self, and loving creation. Like it's, it's, it's one of the key dimensions of, of our model of discipleship here. And one we need to grow in. Uh, so I absolutely affirm that. I guess, I mean, probably everything Greg said I would agree with, though I would want to say that the Anabaptist tradition itself does have some resources here, I think, that are important to notice. There was a book written, I think, about 10 years ago now, uh, titled something like Creation and the Environment, an Anabaptist Perspective, something like that. A group of Anabaptists wrote about this topic, and they, they pointed these things out. They said that this hasn't been as dominant a theme in Anabaptist theology as it could be, but let's remember, every time we say uh, about anything in Anabaptist theology, like, where is it, Let's remember that the Anabaptists, unlike most other groups of Protestants, rarely had a moment in history where they could sit back, kick back, and write theology. They were usually running for their lives. Uh, and so there's a lot of theological stuff you could say about Anabaptist tradition that, that hasn't been thoroughly investigated. Uh, in this particular book I saw, you saw a group of Anabaptists who took this very seriously and pointed out that many Anabaptists have been very agrarian in, in their in their way of living, that the Amish, for example, are very tied to the land. So there's always been this, this, this important connection between Anabaptism and the land, and that that provides a basis for, uh, for, for the working out of a theology of creation care mm. that would be very in line with, with their way of, of seeing and living. So I think it's possible. I, I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago in the, in the pulpit that the Hutterites in particular had, or they were known for their care of their, their farm animals and and referred to them as part of the family. 
um, and that there was a theology that circulated among the early Anabaptists that uh, animals, abused animals, will stand in judgment over their abusers. Uh, because how you use power, power that you have over those who are vulnerable to your power, was the criteria for judgment. It's really an interesting and convicting perspective. And I, I uh, just, I forgot about this, but there's a book that's going to be coming out here very soon um, uh, by Trip York. Uh, he's the editor. Um, Trip York or York Trip? Trip York. Trip York, yeah. Uh, called, I, I think it's Good News for All Creation. And it's uh, a number of essays from Anabaptists on this uh, particular uh, topic and showing how coming out of the Anabaptist tradition, there is this a care is called a care for all creation. Your next question is, what is the Anabaptist view on original sin? Across the board. <laughs> I don't, I, you know, they would, um, I don't think they, they, they don't have any official view on original sin. Um, I bet if you were to uh, interview a bunch of them, they would all agree on one thing, and that is that the traditional view was wrong, <laughs> uh, which all Protestants have agreed with. The idea that uh, you inherit original sin as a sort of sexually transmitted disease. Uh, that's really how it got to be thought about from the time of Augustine all through the Middle Ages. Uh, there was a defect in our genes, as it were, and you pass it on through sex. That's one of the reasons why they thought virginity was a higher calling than being married and why priests weren't allowed to uh, have wives and uh, things of that sort, and, and that you're born guilty. And, the, you know, the traditional view, unless the baby is baptized, the baby goes to hell. Maybe not the deepest crevice of hell. Maybe it's only limbo. It's only moderate hell. Hell nonetheless, and it's uh, eternal and unending. And I remember when I heard that in third grade, I just about came uncorked. Uh, I don't care. Yeah, the, and the nun used this analogy of, of, well, they're not being tortured, but they're like in a room outside of heaven, and, and, uh, and I asked, well, can they ever see their parents? Uh, because, you know, if the parents are saved and they're not, and they, she said, no. And I, get the, I got this picture of these little kids looking through a glass wall at their mommy and daddy. And, and oh, oh what a, that was an ADD moment. That, you get the free of charge. I won't charge you for that. <laughs> but um, anyways, that was, they, they would all agree that that's not the case. Now, having said that, uh, what else they'd say about it? I imagine they would tend to say that, Original sin has more to do with the fact that the context in which we're born is polluted to it to the core. The context in which we're born, or maybe I'm just giving my own view here, I don't know, but, but uh, I would hope they would say, if they were right, they would say, it, it means that, that our environment is polluted down to the core, even our physical bodies, everything is polluted, and we're born in that into a polluted environment, which makes it inevitable that we will, we will sin, but not necessary that we'll sin. And, uh, um, but you're not guilty of anything until you actually act on that impulse, and that's what uh, makes you needing a Savior, but not before that. Do you have a different right view you want to share? <laughs> or, or do you agree with my right view? <laughs> okay, um, I just want to remind people that if you have questions, you can text those in to 651-321-3030. Just a reminder. Because if we run out of, out of questions, Paul's going to start singing. And oh you don't want goodness. that. I've heard him. Uh, <laughs> although his rendition of Dark Morning is pretty good. But, uh, so please, but in general, more questions. we don't want to hear that. Um, so, how do Anabaptists view the atonement? The theory of salvation through violence, suffering, and death does not seem to fit the Anabaptist lens. You're right. What? Want me to go? All right. Yeah, the... Um, 
The early Anabaptists, again, there's, they, they didn't have time to sit down and think through this and theologize. So you'll find in the writings of the early Anabaptists, uh, it's across the board. Um, every, you know, there's the penal substitution view, which is that you know, the father punished Jesus in our place so that we get off the hook. He vented his wrath so he didn't have to vent his wrath against us. It's called penal substitution. You'll find some Anabaptists who held that view. Uh, then you have just the regular substitution. He died in our place, but not as a way of diverting the father's wrath from us. Um, you find some who had more, held more to uh, like the moral example view that he provides the model that we're to live by, and, and, and that's what uh, and it causes us to be reconciled to God. But the dominant view among the early Anabaptists, uh, and the view that I think most are gravitating towards today, would be the Christus Victor view. Um, they, they would all, the problem that, they have, that most Anabaptists have with the penal substitution view and I, I think the majority of Anabaptists would agree with this. Maybe all of them. But it, it, it's the idea that the father had to, was, got mad at Jesus and had to vent his wrath violently on the son in order to not uh, vent his wrath violently on us. Well, it gives a picture of God that is uh, not quite consistent with a God who is uh, completely uh, nonviolent. Um, and... Um, and it, 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 it puts at the center of redemption a violent act. Uh, it's called the myth of redemptive violence. That violence solves problems. Here you have at the center of history the supreme act of violence. If the father kills a son to solve the problem, well, that reinforces the idea that violence is a solution. And the, one of the things that Anabaptists have been passionate about is that the problem with, with, with us is that we think that violence solves things. That's why we keep on doing it. Oh, if we just kill a few more, that will do it. Uh, and, and so the majority would be against penal substitution. And the, what I see right now is that the, the, a, there's a big kind of push among Anabaptists to embrace the Christus Victor model, uh, which is that the supreme act of love that's demonstrated on the cross uh, broke the powers of darkness and sets human beings free. The main thing that Jesus did when he died on the cross, called the Christus Victor view, it's Latin for Christ is victorious, um, that First John 3.8 says that he came to destroy the devil and his works. Or Hebrews 2.14 says he came to destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And so that act of love was like a bomb that exploded in the kingdom of darkness and uh, broke the powers of darkness and set human beings free and reconciled us to God. Uh, that would be the dominant view. Although I will, I'll say one other thing, and that is that most people agree that you can't say everything that needs to be said about the atonement with one theory. I mean, God did a lot of things on the cross. It's, that's why it's called the manifold wisdom of God, the multi-layered wisdom of God. Um, and so they, I don't think anyone wants to say this is the only thing he did. The question is, what's the main thing he did? And I think there's a general tendency for Anabaptists to say it's a Christus Victor view, though they wouldn't hold it dogmatically. Anything to add? Paul perfect. edited a very good book on the atonement, by the way, Four Views of the Atonement. So it's out there in our galley area. You can pick it up there. During the series, Greg mentioned that the Anabaptists are the only Christian tradition that doesn't have blood on its hands. But I read recently on a Mennonite website that a scholar has shown that some Mennonites actually participated in violence yeah, against Jews under Hitler's regime. Do you know if this is true? And if so, how does this square with Greg's claim? Let me defend you on this. Defend me, please. Defend you. Please. Greg's wrong. <laughs> what a friend. What it. a friend I have in Paul. <laughs> All my troubles he creates. 
Yeah, Greg, Greg has said numerous <laughs> times that the Anabaptist tradition is, I, th- I think you said the one tradition that doesn't have blood on their hands. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I would say two things about this particular question. Um, I mean, Greg knows his Anabaptist history well enough to know that not every Anabaptist in history has lived up to the Anabaptist ideal of, of, of having no blood on their hands. Um, I mean, uh, in a city in Munster, city of Munster, uh, very early on, like I think maybe fifteen twenty seven. Was that soon? I think it was 1527. Wow. I, it was early on. It was very um, early on. A, a group of Anabaptists took over the city. They weren't Anabaptists. No, they weren't. <laughs> they were crazy. They were nuts. They were Jim Jones called. You're trying they to Anabaptists. sanitize the tradition. Let's be honest, all right? Um, no, no, really. No, lie. In the early days, I'm talking about the first 30 years of Anabaptism, you had different perspectives of Anabaptists on the question of violence. And this is sort of was the extreme example where one group, and there were some pretty crazy people in this group, ended up taking over, and one guy proclaimed himself King David and uh, started inaugurated uh, polygamy, predominantly for himself, and uh, (laughs) killing people in the market square who didn't agree with him. And it it went went nuts, right? But when that happened, uh, that was sort of a definitive moment. And Anabaptists after that looked at what had happened there and said, that's got to be the opposite of what we do. In fact, that ended up fueling a whole uh, way of being peaceful. It was, look what happens when you try to use power over. Um, so it's uh, suffice to say, the, the um, desire to live the, the call of Jesus to love one's enemies and to be peacemakers has very quickly became the Anabaptist ideal, and, but it doesn't mean that every Anabaptist lived up to it. Now, in response to the second part, were there Anabaptists who actually participated in the Nazi Holocaust? Um, I, I suspect what's being referred to is an, there was an article that came out three years ago now in the um, uh, Mennonite Quarterly Review, a guy named uh, Gerhard Hemp, uh, Rempel, who did a study showing that there apparently were what he says, Mennonites involved both as camp guards, concentration camp guards, and then certain Mennonite farmers and business people around the places where these, some of these Nazi concentration camps were who benefited from, from cheap labor from the Jewish people who were there, therefore arguing that Mennonites were complicit uh, in the Nazi Holocaust. What I'd want to say is he's pretty clear in his article of who he defines as Mennonite. And what he says is, I'm not claiming these people were actually practicing Mennonites at the time or even involved in a Mennonite congregation. What I'm saying is their ethnic heritage and family name sound Mennonite. <laughs> okay, if that's how we're going to define Mennonite, then perhaps. But he, he, doesn't, he can't even show that these people were like practicing Mennonites at the time, just that they had a heritage that went back to, to Mennonites. Uh, so if you've got Nazi guards who have a Mennonite name... It sounds like they're not very Mennonite anymore, um, and we're talking about just a, a heritage, uh, a family heritage. Um, that's important to know about that study because it, it can come across as uh, different if you don't know that how, how he's defining Mennonites in that study. And that really is, I think, an important point. Um, Anabaptists, uh, with some, some who define or use this term, it simply means anybody who believes in adult baptism. And then since this crazy guy at Munster 
uh, who did nutso stuff. It was a Jim Jones cult. Since he baptized adults, well, look, he must be Mennonite. Uh, and I'd want to define it a little more, more tightly than that. But you, you do find when the Peasants' Revolt, there was some who had just joined the Anabaptist movement, who then joined the, the uh, Peasants' Revolt. And remember, you know, they're doing this two or three years after the movement started. Uh, it takes a while for people to grow in their, in their thoughts and in their theology and whatever. And as, as Paul said, in the early movement, when people are coming in from all these different traditions, you've got different views, you know, and so it takes a while to work all those out. But right from the start, with the first confession, the Schleitheim Confession, you've got nonviolence at the center of it. And that's what gets repeated throughout the tradition, is the centrality of living like Christ, loving enemies, turning the other cheek. It's always at the center. So that if you find some folks who don't live up to that, who, who commit violence, they're doing it against their tradition. Whereas every other tradition had in place, it was part of what they did was as a group, they persecuted, put to death, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's what I was uh, referring to by saying it's a, the nonviolent tradition. But I probably should be, be more clear on what I mean by not having blood on their hands. Lest anyone think that everybody whose last name is Yoder never sinned, <laughs> since Yoder is the most common Anabaptist name. All Yoders are sinless. <laughs> okay. Um, when should I or should I not obey the state when it comes to following Jesus? Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, whenever there's anything in the state that would cause you to uh, compromise, you're following Jesus. I would say then you have an obligation to not obey the state. Uh, you know, it's like in, in Acts, is Acts 5 where they, the apostles say, you know, should we obey uh, man or uh, God? And they say we've got to obey God. And so if God calls us, now it's very clear in the, in the New Testament that we're to obey insofar as it's possible. And Paul says in, in uh, Romans 12, insofar as it's possible, live at peace with all people. And you have to obey the laws of the land and submit to those who are in authority. You, you find that. Um, mainly because, I think in the, in the, in the, from the view of the New Testament, since we're about a different kingdom, don't needlessly distract yourself by getting in trouble with that kingdom. You know, stay as clean as possible, because why waste time? But insofar as we're to um, uh, you know, follow the call of God, if, if, the, if following the state ever requires us to uh, forsake our call to be kingdom of disciples, we have an obligation, I think, to disobey it. Civil disobedience. Do you agree, Paul? Yeah, no, Apostle Paul, if we took Paul seriously in Philippians 3 where he says about Christians that our citizenship is in heaven, that's... That's our colony. That, that's our kingdom. That's our, that's our city. Uh, you know, our, that's our nation, is, is heaven, the heavenly kingdom. And he doesn't mean some pie in the sky by and by. He's talking about the kingdom of God. That's our kingdom. And then he talks about us as being ambassadors in this world. If we took that literally, I think it would be the same sort of question as saying, well, um, to what degree does the ambassador from France to the U.S. obey U.S. laws? If you just take this very straightforwardly. Well, he obeys U.S. laws all the time, right? That, that, that's what you do when you're a, a foreign ambassador in another country. But if it ever came where obeying that law was doing something to betray his position as the French ambassador to France, then he would have to renegotiate that, right? That's the same thing. I think that's another way of saying what Greg's saying. We're called to be ambassadors in this world as citizens of the kingdom of God. And when you're an ambassador, you, 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 you try to get along with and... and 
uh, relate positively with your host country. But if your host country all of a sudden gives a law or a command or something that's going to cause you to violate your actual first allegiance to your home state, then, then things have to be looked at differently. And I think to, to use that analogy, I think Paul took that very seriously and literally. Act as ambassadors in a foreign country. How, how does that work? Um, I think that would help us uh, have, have concrete answers to, to that sort of question. And notice that it's not obey your country as long as your country is in line with God. Right. Um, and, and this is a, a, a thing I've seen that is a little bit concerning among some of the younger, more radical uh, Anabaptist types is they're calling for uh, Jesus' followers to not pay taxes because paying taxes supports the war regime. Uh, and supports uh, abortion clinics, and supports all sorts of ungodliness. So don't pay taxes. But see, that's confusing the two kingdoms again. Uh, three times in the New Testament, we're told explicitly to pay our taxes. Do you think any of the earliest Christians thought that the uh, Roman Empire was righteous? <laughs> Not at all. I mean, their, their debauchery makes our government and most other governments look like you know, saints. Uh, but they said pay taxes because, look, at, we're foreigners here, and this is what we do. Our job is to uh, be building the kingdom of God, so don't get distracted by this. Whatever money they want, give it to them uh, rather than trying to police what they do. And you, you find that going on more and more these days. I'm finding that since I got on the radar screen with the, the Anabaptist, so I get people calling me saying, will you sign this petition and da-da-da-da so that we can get the government to stop doing this unrighteous stuff and we should be able to cut you, blah, 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 blah. It's like, I don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing. Don't tweak what they're doing. Just do what you're supposed to do. How does the principle of nonviolence apply to areas of life beyond just physical force? Ah, good. I think that's a really good question. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. Yeah, I, I'll take a stab at it. No, you know what? I, I, I think it is to reduce it down to a rule about physical force is to totally miss the point. Um, it is uh, the call to live in uh, shalom, in congruity. Right? So it's, it means that the, at the center of the kingdom, what the kingdom is all about, is living as much as possible, moving in this direction, where you have a lack of conflict, first between you and God, so there's peace between you and God, and then a lack of conflict between you and you, so there's congruity between you and you. Most of our consternation comes because there's not congruity there. There's conflict there. Anger with yourself, hate yourself, disagree with yourself, all, all that. It's warfare on the inside. And I would say that they call, that when we say peace is at the center of the gospel, we mean that before we mean uh, peace, you know, lack of, of physical violence towards another. In fact, I would argue that all external violence is simply the manifestation of internal violence. It's because we have, we're, we're violently related, we have conflict with God and conflict with ourselves, that we have conflict with others, and we're willing to resort to whatever force we need to to resolve it. But the, the teaching of peace is first and foremost about uh, having, having, being a shalom person where there is a lack of conflict between you and God, you and you, and therefore you and, and all others. And then you and creation. It's, it's that holistic. So it's about putting off all hostile thoughts 
Violent thoughts. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, don't go feeling righteous because you didn't murder somebody. You know, have, have you said raka? Is there violence in, in your heart? Um, and um, uh, having hostility towards your brother. So violent thoughts. Pay attention to those. Hostile thoughts. All gossiping is a form of violence. All, you're, you're, you're detracting the worth of another. You're, the term for violence it comes from the Latin. It means to violate something. We, we engage in violence whenever we violate the intrinsic worth of something. So whenever we... Since everybody has, has unsurpassable worth, whenever we think about them in any way that is less than that they have unsurpassable worth, we have committed violence. Um, and whenever we treat ourselves and think about ourselves and have hostility towards ourselves uh, as, as that is not in congruity with unsurpassable worth, we're committing violence. You see? And so that, that is what the, the, the peace thing is about more than anything else. Uh, waking up to all the ways that, that there is violence in our thoughts, in our attitudes, our feelings. That's why I, I found about 10 years ago that I had to detox from the whole thing. I had to just go, I have to declare war, <laughs> excuse the pun, but I have to declare war on all violence. To move to say, I don't want to have any violence towards anything for any reason, um, if at all possible. Um, I think that's the center of uh, it's purging yourself of all the violence on the inside. That's so that's that, that was a good word. I mean, every once in a while you get it every right. once in a while I get it right. Most of the time, no, yeah. I know, but you know, because uh, <laughs> so frequently with sort of peace church traditions, the sort of the bad guy becomes uh, the nation or the army or something, which which is very convenient because what it means is you can sort of point the finger and feel self-righteous about condemning a war effort and, and pick it, which the hard work is going home and you not being violent either in thought, word, or deed towards your loved ones, like to actually being peacemakers in your own home, for example, or amongst your employee. you know, that, that's where the hard work is. And so often we deflect it onto sort of the you know, other very easy areas to point fingers at rather mm -hmm. than letting it roost at home. And so that's absolutely, amen. And do you, and do you see how, I understand, I'm going to worry about this. You know, the Bible says, let peace rule in your heart. I, I love that, that, that teaching in the New Testament. Let peace rule in your heart. What a ruler. To be submitted to peace in all things. And you see, if it's possible and even likely, unless they know otherwise, for people to believe right things but believe them violently. You're, you're, you're a militant for the rightness of your position. And you use it to separate yourself from others and stand over others, thereby detracting worth from others and ascribing worth to yourself. And as I read the New Testament, the minute we do that, all your correct doctrine is worthless. Absolutely worthless. And so if, if there isn't a commitment to, uh, for, towards peace, and peace that's done out of love, love for God, love for self, and love for others, uh, then, it's, then everything else is lost. 1 Corinthians 13, it's all just religious noise. That's why I think this is the center of the center of the center. Good. As a veteran, I am proud of my service and the service of my fellow veterans. How can the Anabaptist commitment to peace still allow for care and acceptance for people who have chosen violence? 
I've been hogging the stage so much. I feel like I really need to. I need to de- defer no, to no, my no, brother. No, 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 the Bible describes this as a royal priesthood in First Peter, a royal priesthood, and that's referring back to the Levitical priests of the Old Testament, and they were the one group that weren't called that they were called to nonviolence, the one group of Israelites that weren't allowed to fight. It was just a separate calling, and um, um, and so also. I see the, us as having a separate calling. The, 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 the priests of the Old Testament didn't, weren't supposed to be judging everybody else. This is just what they were called to. And so also, this is what I'm called to. And, uh, but that doesn't mean I should ever judge anybody else. It doesn't mean that I can't see the courage there and the honor that's there and the you know, character that's there um, and, and say yay to that. Um, yeah, I, I, I can ascri- I, I affirm all that. It's also the case that because I see this as a central thing, it's not violence, call to love our enemies, uh, unless you're in a relationship with me, I don't have any business uh, trying to judge you. If you ask my opinion, I'll walk you through why I think the way I do. But at the end of the day, you've got to call the shots the way you see them. Even if you're a fellow uh, brother, sister in Christ, um, I've had folks, I mean, my, my... my biggest passion is to, tell, is to say to whoever will listen to me, uh, think about these things. Uh, at least it ought to be on the radar screen. Walk through these, the, these teachings and then you know, make an informed in, uh, opinion. Um, the greatest problem, I think, is that we're so conditioned by the thinking of the world, the thinking of the culture, that we just default to that. It doesn't even occur to people that there might possibly be a contradiction between what the country calls you to do and what God calls you to do. We just naively assume that the two are the same. And so I, I'm, my biggest passion is to say, no, wait, at least question it, walk it through, examine it. At the end of the day, you're going to do what's on your heart to do, and I'm not going to judge you. Uh, but uh, um, you know, I, I do want you to wake up and, and, and look at it. But the final thing I'll say is that um, it doesn't at all mean that I can't acknowledge the character and the selflessness and the sacrifice uh, that went into someone giving their life on the battlefield or laying their, their, their uh, uh, lives on the line. But I would also, even as I say that, I would want to say i got to acknowledge that on other sides as well. I, we have to be a people who are, are transcend the tribalism that calls us to, can easily loop us into a us-them thing where we're no longer um, uh, loving our enemies. Yeah, the only thing I'd add is this conversation around this question is something that Anabaptists discuss amongst themselves. Um, I, for the first 12 years of my life, I grew up in an Anabaptist church. And um, my, my grandfather, uh, great-grandfather, was an Anabaptist uh, minister, Church of the Brethren. And I remember, uh, as a kid, hearing my dad and my uncles discussing this. Uh, and my, my, my grandfather had been in World War II. And then there was family conversations around the difficulty of the peace principle, as my family wrestled with it, because my grandfather had, had signed up and gone to war at World War II. And... 
there was at least the, the ability in, in our family and friends in this church to go, hey, I, I can understand why you did that, and I can understand why that grandfather didn't. And, um, and there was able to be a peaceful conversation about the fact that we even disagreed on how to apply this peace, uh, peace principle in, in the conflict of World War II. So um, Anabaptists have this conversation amongst themselves, and that's, I think, an important that's a good point. Even this question is one of the things, like I said earlier, about how, how you discuss it is more important than the conclusions you have to it. They would even apply that principle to this topic. And uh, they have room for differences even with that. They'll never stop loving a brother or sister in Christ because they disagree with them. That's good. This question is for Greg, but I think Paul can weigh in if he feels like it. Greg. <laughs> I, I, I will let him. Will you? If he's nice to me. <laughs> Greg, in your second sermon of this series, The Twist, you spoke of people who read the Bible as a flat book. I have trouble seeing how the New Testament trumps the Old Testament. Aren't both true or neither are true? Mm. Yeah. Very good. Um, yeah, I think a whole lot hangs on this question. I think this gets to the core of a lot of stuff. Because um, if you read it as a flat book, as though everything was equally authoritative, authoritative, then you can't help but compromise the revelation of God in Christ. Um, you'll have to, he, he will become one of the things that reveals God, but now the portrait of God commanding genocide also reveals God and all the other texts. And so you'll have a composite picture of God that will only partly look like Jesus Christ. And then you also will have this issue of, of where do you take your marching orders. If it's all equally authoritative, uh, then uh, you'll feel okay uh, praying those psalms that pray for the death of a leader like we have going on these days. These vindictive psalms. But now you've got to really wonder if, if, if you're doing that, what do you do with Jesus who forbids all of that? See, you can't. It's logically impossible to give everything equal authority because um, you've got a contradiction here. Jesus forbids a whole lot of stuff that you find going on and even commanded in the Old Testament. Classic cases, uh, Jesus says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Okay, now that's commanded three times in the Old Testament. It's not just a suggestion, it's commanded. Um, it's, a, it's the lex talionis, it's called. It's the foundational principle of justice throughout the whole Old Testament. And Jesus says, but I say unto you, uh, love your enemies, thus will they persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, turn the other cheek when someone strikes you, and on and on and on. Which one are you going to obey? You can't obey both. You've got to decide what's going to have the greater authority. Now what people tend to do is they'll stick with Jesus until they like the Old Testament a little better, and then they'll go to that. And they like the Old Testament a little bit better when they want to feel justified hating somebody, maybe even killing them. Um, that is, I think, a, it's, not only, it's logically inconsistent, it's also being unfaithful. Um, to follow Jesus is to follow Jesus. And he himself, he, he himself uh, puts himself over the teachings of the Old Testament. I, gave, I just gave you one example, but there are many others. I mean, he says, uh, John, he says uh, my teaching in uh, uh, John 5, he says, my teaching uh, or my, my testimony is greater or weightier than John the Baptist. And yet he says, John the Baptist was the greatest of all the prophets up unto himself. So he's saying, my teaching carries more weight than everything that preceded me, which is exactly what Hebrews 1 
tells us. In previous times, God has spoken to us through his prophets in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his own son, who is the, uh, the radiance of his God's glory and the exact representation of God's essence. And the author here is contrasting the full revelation we have in Christ with the partial things we had in the Old Testament. I can go on and on and on about this, but um, um, I think it's very important that you realize that it's, it's, a, it's a novel. It's, it's, it's a story. It's not a cookbook. A cookbook, you can pull a recipe out anywhere you want, and it will have the same meaning. But in a story, where you are at in the story makes all the difference. And in this case, it's a story that where the, the, what happens in the last chapter, which is the last days, reframes everything that, that went on before. Uh, everyone thought that, I mean, just look at the law. Everyone thought the law made you righteous. You have that teaching in the Old Testament. Jesus comes along, there's this new kingdom, new revelation, and then Paul realizes that the law was given uh, only as a way of driving us to Christ. It was given as a, to, as a custodian uh, to reveal our sin, expose us, uh, show us that we are sinners to drive us to Christ. No one saw that coming. It completely changed the, the meaning of the law. And everyone thought that the, the Messiah, because you know, the Old Testament seems to point in this direction, the Messiah would be this political Messiah, military Messiah, who would kick the Roman behind and, and get him off our backs and reinstate Israel as a sovereign nation. Yay, go Israel. Jesus shows up, and he completely collapses the nationalistic regime, completely collapses the military thing, won't answer any of their political questions, ends up giving a kingdom that looks infinitely beautiful, than, more beautiful than anything they expected, but very, very different. And so uh, we have got to, we've got to realize that with the coming of Jesus, everything else that was there to prepare us for this is now done, and we take our marching orders from Jesus and our picture of God from Jesus, and our life is to be based on Jesus, whose, whose own life is centered on the cross, and so it, it's all about living a cruciform life. Um, you know, there's no, no way to read it as a flat book and be consistent. The only, only thing I'd tweak there is you said at one point it's like a novel, and I would say, no, it's the truest story ever told. But the story piece well, a novel can be true. A true, true novel. True novel. Yeah. No, I don't think so. No. You can't. You, a novel can be true. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about fiction and nonfiction another time, Greg. But, um, a nonfiction novel. What's wrong with that? Can't you have that? <laughs> I don't think novels are ever true. Really? Is a yeah. novel by definition? It could be a uh, story. False. It could be a true story. I don't think it could be a, a true, true novel. True story, yes. Yeah. All right. Well. Okay. Story. Story is important. All right. uh, <laughs> and then it's not like a novel. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a true story. There we go. There we that, go. That was written in the form of a novel. Someone who's done a lot of really. <laughs> someone who's done a lot of really good work on this question um, is a New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright. And in the early 90s, N.T. Wright wrote an article, I think it was the early 90s, uh, he published it. We talked about where do we find the locus of authority in the Bible? How does the Bible function as authority for us? Because the common way, the way to use Greg's metaphor, is sort of like a cookbook. Like, you know, uh, flip it open, point your finger, and whatever it says, there's the word of God, do it. But N.T. Wright says, you know, that's not actually how, how it works because the Bible flows. It's a story. It starts with a creation story in Genesis. It ends with the redemption of all things in the book of Revelation. And between those two points, the beginning and the end, there's a directionality to this story. And so N.T. Wright says the important question to ask is, what time is it? Where are we at in the story? Well, you and I are at in the story is somewhere between after Jesus and before the end of all things. 
that's it's the age of the, of the church who is supposed to be uh, living into the kingdom of God. And that means we're not at the point in the story where the Old Testament saints were. When they were there, that was their time, and that was what they were supposed to be doing. But a new, a new age has dawned. The new kingdom has come. And that shifts now the point of where we're at in the story and therefore how we treat the Bible authoritatively with regard to what we're called to do as the people of God here and now. So that, that story thing is absolutely essential to not reading as, as a flat book. I think. Do you realize that Elijah would not have been able to be one of Jesus' disciples? It's... Uh, it's crazy, but you know, the, the, there's the episode where Jesus sends his disciples out into Samaria, and the Samarians reject him, and they come back, and they're griping, well, they didn't like us, they rejected us. And then they say to Jesus, can we call down, should we call down fire from heaven right now and incinerate them? And Jesus, is, he rebukes them. And in some of the earliest manuscripts that I think are the legitimate ones, he adds, um, and you don't know what kind of spirit you are of. Now, the thing that's interesting is that what they were asking for in that locale in Samaria was exactly what Elijah did in that locale several hundred years earlier. Called on fire, and boom, incinerated his foes. And he's held up as kind of a heroic figure in the Old Testament. But Jesus rebukes his disciples for wanting to do what this hero did, showing that times have changed. Times have changed. In fact, all the warriors of the Old Testament if Jesus says, uh, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, uh, that, you may, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. None of those guys would have been considered children of your Father in heaven. Now, I'm not saying they're not saved or anything. I think, you know, God, God grades on a curve, if you will. But they weren't where uh, the followers of Jesus are supposed to be. And it just shows you the importance of knowing where you are you at in the story. Good. Why were reformers like Luther and Calvin so opposed to the Anabaptists? Was it because most of them chose to embrace state religion? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting though, that the early days of the Reformation, um, people are throwing open all these possibilities. And, uh, you know, in Zurich, Zwingli, Zwingli inspired the first Anabaptists, they, they were his disciples. And it seems like what it came down to over and over again, whether it was the baptism, it frequently was the baptism question. Should we move from infant baptism to adult baptism, uh, believer's baptism, as the Anabaptists are saying? And the problem in that day and age was, if you did that, you weren't just talking about a religious uh, ritual. You were talking about denying the way citizens were made in a particular national or city locale. Because in that day of age, when you were baptized as a baby, you weren't just baptized into the you know, kingdom of God as a baby. You were baptized as a citizen in that city or nation or whatever. And so to say, we're not going to do that with our kids anymore, it was basically to say, we're not going to make our, let our kids be citizens. And all of a sudden, you have the threat of anarchy on your hands, complete political anarchy. And this caused Luther and others to go, wait a minute, we, we can't let anarchy happen here. Uh, which is why when things like the Peasants' Revolt happened, Luther came down very strongly against that. Uh, anarchy, you know. And so uh, maintaining the civil order uh, sort of became a very important point for a lot of the Reformers. The Anabaptists simply said, if it comes down to following the gospel or trying to maintain the, civ the, the civil order as we know it, sorry, we have to, have to follow the gospel. 
That's how I yeah. see it. Uh, it. It's all, see, the, the reformers still operated with a Christendom mindset. And they still, they fused together. These assumed that um, the church and the state work together. That's the Christendom. And uh, it's by, by that fusion that you're going to conquer the world for Jesus, right? Conquer the world for truth. And these had, uh, these had a different variation on it than the Catholics had. Uh, it's interesting that the Calvin and Luther and Zwingli, they all, b- before they got into power, they were all going, you know, tolerance, you, we ought to, you, know, you shouldn't be telling the Catholics, you shouldn't be persecuting people who disagree. As soon as they get into power, they turn around and persecute everyone who disagrees. Because now they have got the power of the sword. You know, they all do their little kind of Constantinian shift. You know, the church got all this power in the 4th and 5th century, turns around, starts persecuting the non-Christians. And so that's going on for a thousand years. Then the Reformation comes, and they're all saying, oh, you shouldn't, you know, Jesus wouldn't want this kind of killing. But as soon as they get into power, boom, they inherit the sword once again and turn around to do the same thing over and over again. Um, the only ones who wouldn't participate in that were the, the Anabaptists. And for all the reasons Paul said, uh, the Christendom has never, well, it's not just Christendom's fault, it's uh, reigning authorities have never liked dissenters. You know, people who threaten, threaten their power, who threaten their rightness, who threaten you know, their sovereignty, uh, threaten their wealth. These are the enemies and the mindset of the world going back to square one, whether it's part of Christianity or not, the mindset of the world's always been you win when you crush the opposition. And if you have that mindset, then you can do it in the name of Zeus, or you can do it in the name of, of uh, the Bolshevist Revolution, or you can do it in the name of the Tsar, you can do it, or you can do it in Jesus' name. It doesn't matter. You're still just you're crushing to win. And so everyone's been doing that, crushing to win, uh, until some small groups of people said, wait a minute, that doesn't, I don't think Jesus called us to crush to win. One more variation on that theme. No, he called us, if anything, to be willing to be crushed. Um, and that's how you win. A totally different way of winning and of fighting. Mm-hmm. Well, we have had so many good questions, and we have a lot more. And per usual, we won't have time to get to every single question that we got in today. So I want to thank all of you for your questions. I think we're going to have time for about two more, depending upon how long-winded Greg and Paul are. Me? <laughs> Me? All depends. Yes, you. So here's your second-to-last question. Could you address the apocalyptic tendencies of many of the early Anabaptists? It didn't seem to be limited to Munster, and from my experience, it's a tendency that is carried forward to the present. But it always seems to be used as a way of scaring people into the kingdom, which seems to me to be counterproductive. I ought to first explain what apocalyptic tendency is. Yeah, well, I, I thought you were going to... Yeah, okay. You, you took a breath like you were going to answer it, so... I was. I wanna, first, first say that. Okay. <laughs> So apocalyptic, um, uh, technically it comes from, the, from a Greek word, apocalypse, meaning to reveal or unveil something. And in fact, the last book of our Bible, Revelation, is a translation of the word apocalypse, uh, an unveiling or revealing something. Uh, apocalypse or apocalyptic um, ways of thinking characterized not all but a lot of Judaism at the time of Jesus' day. So, for example, most Pharisees, as far as we know, were apocalyptic. Uh, the Essenes at Qumran were apocalyptic. Jesus himself was apocalyptic. Meaning, uh, apocalypse involves several things. It had a very strong sense of a warfare worldview, meaning spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is a dominant part of apocalyptic thought. 
Uh, there's forces of good. There's forces of evil in the spiritual realm, angels and demons, and they're, they're, they're at war. And, and we choose sides, in a sense, of either kingdom of darkness or kingdom of God. Um, apocalyptic also tended to see that the end was coming, that God wasn't going to let this war go on forever. Rather, God would settle this war at the end by defeating the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of God would therefore come and renew all things. So in a sense, that's apocalyptic. Uh, you believe in this conflict, the spiritual conflict, and the end is coming because God's going to set things right. Uh, so on one hand, I'd want to say um, apocalypse, if you're going to be a Christian oriented to the New Testament, you're going to have to be apocalyptic in some sense, or you're going to have to dump most of the New Testament. But there's been historically very silly and dangerous ways of being apocalyptic, namely couple ways. One is you take the, the battle in the heavenly realm and you start looking for human enemies that represent the good and the evil. And of course, you're the good and they're the evil. And now you bring this not as a spiritual warfare thing, but as an actual hating people and others and naming us versus them. And that's just been a common way that apocalyptic has been played out. Uh, another way is date setting. And so you know Jesus is coming, and all of a sudden you believe you've got the secret knowledge as to when and where and how, and you start uh, doing pretty crazy things sometimes uh, to, to say when, when he's coming back and therefore quit working or just a lot of things people have done in anticipation of the end times. And all of that did go on among some of the early Anabaptists. That, that's what fueled Munster. Uh, that, that, that city that went crazy, was they thought the end was coming. They thought this was the city he was literally coming to, like he's coming to Munster and setting up the new Jerusalem here. And so we got to, what, get rid of the physical enemies that don't look like they're in the kingdom of God and start killing them so, we, so Jesus has a nice place to come back to. And get a lot of wives before Jesus comes back. A lot of wives too, yeah. <laughs> um, so that peace was there. Uh, once the Munster thing happened, a lot of people said, we're not going to give up the belief that Jesus is coming back or that there's a spiritual war, but we must give up the idea that our, our war is against flesh and blood. It's not. It's a spiritual battle. And in terms of flesh and blood, brothers and sisters or human beings, that's about peace. And so, uh, yeah, a little, little bit of the history there. There, there some, certainly was apocalyptic elements in, in, in uh, early Anabaptism, and some of them went in pretty damaging ways. Do you think that the Anabaptists had a, a greater propensity towards that uh, throughout their history because they're persecuted by the world? I mean, usually persecuted people are the ones who have the greatest hope and really are the ones who pray Maranatha with some urgency. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And um, whereas when you're very comfortable, you know, and you've got it close to heaven right here, it, it, there's not that passion like, oh, please, Lord, come back. Um, and I wonder, I don't know much about the history of the Anabaptists as it, as it concerns the apocalyptic tendency, but I wouldn't be surprised if that well, was the case. I, I mean, that makes sense with the pattern, right? Because the only Jewish group uh, at Jesus' day who wasn't oriented towards apocalyptic were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the ones who had collaborated with Roman power. They were in charge. So I think there is this sort of tendency, like when you're on top and you're running things, why would you want things to end? You're in power. But when you're persecuted yeah, and yeah. you're not, then, then you're hoping the end comes pretty quick. So it yeah. makes sense, humanly speaking. And the, the interesting thing about the apocalyptic mindset is how it comes and goes. Uh, it, it, it's, it, throughout history, you can see it flowing in and out. Um, like I, I was uh, saved in 1974, which I gather, which I, I just thought that was just normal, like all Christians were like this. 
Uh, but I came to realize that, you know, it was just at the peak of a kind of a flow where all we, we, we talk about the rapture and revelation and the beast all the time. And that was the gospel. The way you would witness to people was to say, are, are you rapture ready? And, and people were like, what? Rapture ready. Are you rapture? You know, come on. You know, and life was filled with guns and war and everyone got trampled on the floor. I uh, wish we had all been ready. ready. There's no ch- Yeah, Keith Green. Yeah, it's, how many of you? How, how many of you? Larry guys, Norman. Oh yeah, he was. Right. Uh, yeah, he was the guy. Well, yeah, yeah, how many of you were came to Christ during that time period? In the intense apocalypse. I've seen quite a few. Hell, yes. hell, late great planet Earth came out right around that time. Then he came out with another edition, an updated edition. Now it's not Russia; it's the Chinese. And I love the way they revise these apocalyptic maps over time. And he, they keep selling them. Oh, I, I should have thought of this. You can just revise them, you know. Remember that? that what hit. I meant to say was China. Oh no, Russia. Remember the book. It, Eighty-eight reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. Yeah, yep. And and, and then it was 89. In, 89, 89. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just amazing the capacity of people to believe uh, all that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's ebb and flow. And it seems like we're we're. I, I think we're in one now. Or there, we certainly were a couple of years ago with that whole Left Behind Left series. Behind. You know, it seems like it was kind of rising. Now it's sort of dying down. Let's see. One of these days, he's really going to come back. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we were right. But, uh, so, all right. Okay. We well, will not get crazy, though, we promise you. <laughs> we will not get apocalyptic crazy, though we do think he's coming back anytime. Okay. Here's your last question. I hope you sing during this one also. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> You're right. I don't. Um, a lot of Anabaptist traditions stress small, intimate community in which things and responsibilities are shared. Is Woodland Hills moving toward a model like this? We have for a long time. In a sense, I mean, um, you've got, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the distinctive of the Anabaptist movement has always been they realized that the church is not a building. That's been a distinctive. They realized that the church is a community, the bride, the bride of Christ. They realized that it's about living the New Testament, not just believing certain beliefs. And they realized that we need fellow believers to do that. They realized that living for Christ means you've got to swim up culture, which means you can't do it alone. And so they have been uh, real strong advocates of community. Uh, they've always been uh, against, they realize that the New Testament teaches uh, that we're not allowed to own anything. Jesus said, if you have any possessions, you can't be with my disciples. <laughs> they got that. And, and um, that doesn't mean that they all said we can't legally have stuff, but we can't ever consider ourselves as the owner. So they always have stressed generosity and sharing things. And if anyone has need, you share it. And uh, uh, not saying mine and, and all of that. And, um, yeah, so they have held up that ideal. And that has been an, uh, something that we have, I think, with increasing clarity, uh, stood for. Uh, we you know, have always said that the kingdom is about community. I think over time we've gotten clear about what that entails, how hard it is to do in a kingdom way. Um, and so we've been refining our understanding of how to get into it and the classes that are needed and, and the kind of deconstructing of our, our worldview that needs to happen for people to really get into a, a significant kind of community. Uh, so in that sense, we have been growing towards that. But we haven't been doing it because we want to become Anabaptists, and we're not going to do it any different because we you know, want to be in, in an Anabaptist tribe. We'll just keep doing what we've been doing, and it happens to be the same thing that the Anabaptists were doing. Now, I have met a few folks who've, who found Anabaptist groups that were communes. There are some communes out there that really um, you know, are in the Anabaptist stream. Um, and we're not going to be advocating that. If a group decides to do that, well, then that's fine. But don't think that we're going to try to make everyone into a you know, commune or something like that. But 
Community, yes. Com having all things in common except for your wives, no. <laughs> that was a statement in the, in the early church where died, uh, uh, who, uh, the, the, the uh, Didache, uh, early uh, second century uh, document, was explaining Christianity to this pagan guy. And he says, we are a people. We just love everybody. We have all things in common except for our wives. He actually says that. I don't know. That was kind of a cute thing. But yeah, there you go. Okay, I guess that's it. Listen, I, I want to say I really appreciate the fact that you guys were willing to take, you, you cared enough and are interested enough to take a night out of your week uh, to come and ask questions and be a part of that. I, I really appreciate it. People who just take theology seriously and want to think through this and care enough. So thank you for, for coming tonight. Let me close with uh, a, a quick prayer. Uh, Abba Father, uh, again, we thank you for the night that we've had here. I pray, God, that... Uh, things that have been said here, would, if they are congruent with your heart, would you settle them into our hearts and minds so that they would bear fruit? They wouldn't be forgotten as we leave here. Uh, God, bury them deeply in our heart and, and uh, grow them uh, that we, God, would become more and more a people. And this is the all-important thing. Uh, we'd become a people who really do, individually and together, look like Jesus and love like Jesus and serve like Jesus and are humble like Jesus and are reconciled to others like Jesus and are free of conflict in ourselves like Jesus and free of conflict with God and others like Jesus. It's all about just being like Jesus. Holy Spirit, help us to be that as we leave this place in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Drive safe. Love you.